Our reading for today is the book of Isaiah, chapter 54, verses 4 to 8. Do not be afraid, you will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Our second Bible reading today is taken from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your word and for the truth that it contains. We pray that as Graham speaks to us now, you would speak through him and that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning, folks. It's so lovely to have you with us today. Here's what we're going to do over the next number of weeks. We're going to spend time in John's gospel. This account of Jesus' life that was penned by one of his closest friends and followers Uh, written so that everyday people of John's generation and uh, of every generation ever since would be able to pick it up, read, understand about Jesus, believe and have life in his name. And it's a gospel full of encounters that Jesus had with people, different people, different people with different stories, people doing different things people from different places, people with all sorts of different stuff going on in their lives. 
And they each meet Jesus. And an encounter with him flips the whole way that they understand themselves and they understand the world in which they live and the lives that they are living uh, on its head. So let me uh, invite you to grab a Bible and come with me to John chapter 2. We're going to dive into the first of these today. And as we come to John chapter 2, let me go all Dr. Pepper on you. Right, a wedding. What's the worst that could happen? Are you got any good uh, stories about car crash moments from weddings? Let me tell you about one that I was reading about recently that will... Uh, I think, really take the biscuit when it comes to car crash moments, right? Everyone is getting ready for, what do they call it? The big day. It's going great. The service is brilliant. The, the dinner is exquisite. Everybody's having a ball. And the moment in the day comes for the speeches. Now, speeches are always a highlight of any wedding day, aren't they? Well, on this wedding day, the bride's father goes first. And like any good... Uh, father of the bride, he gushes with pride at his daughter, and uh, not a dry eye in the house. And the groom's up next, he showers his bride with compliments. I mean, well played, boys, well played. And then it comes to the best man, who sits down at the end of his speech, and thinking he's nailed it, only for somebody a few moments later to whisper in his ear, and inform him that he's actually used the name of the groom's ex-girlfriend all the way through his speech. I'm no expert, but that's, in my opinion, what they'd kind of call a Dr. Pepper moment, right? That is an absolute howler from the best man. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall the first time he went round to the newlyweds' house for dinner uh, in the years to come. John chapter 2, here's what we're doing. We're joining a wedding that is on the verge of a Dr. Pepper moment itself. Right? Here is a wedding in John chapter 2 that almost all went wrong. You see, in the first century Jewish culture, a culture that centers on honor and shame, the worst thing that could happen at a wedding is that the guests run out of food and drink, right? The worst thing imaginable. Now, we're in the days before outside caterers here. We're in the days before wedding planners when that job is kind of someone else's responsibility. In this day, it is one person's responsibility and that person solely to make sure that the food and drink keeps flowing for the entirety of the feast which in this culture could last for days. Whose job is that? It is the job of the groom. So you got two jobs, bro. Firstly, you need to say, I do. And secondly, you need to make sure that everyone at this feast has enough to eat and drink, right? You can nail this one. But at this wedding in Cana, do you see, if you've got the text there, how our groom learns at verse 3, that he is staring a Dr. Pepper moment right in the face. Now, why is he staring that moment right in his face? Uh, four words, verse 3, the wine ran out. The wine ran out. I mean, he is, he is never going to live this one down. The shame that he is about to bring on his family, on his bride, and uh, most importantly, himself, what's he going to do? 
Well, it's not like there's an off just down the road that he can uh, go down to, saying, boys, if you come down with me, we can get a crate load and bring it back. It might still be open. No, here is a groom who is living his worst nightmare. This must have been the stuff in the days before the wedding that kept him up at night. And there ain't nothing he can do about this situation. And Jesus and his disciples are at this wedding. <laughs> do you know, in the, as a side, I, I love... I love that Jesus was the kind of man who got invited to and attended weddings, right? How many of us have a picture of Jesus in our minds, a bit like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, except he's slightly meaner and he's slightly stricter, right? He is kind of a, kind of a Santa Claus kind of figure, right? Not that he gives you presents, but it is his job to make sure and discern who has been naughty and who has been nice, right? But that's not the Jesus who we encounter in the pages of Scripture. In fact, later in John's Gospel, Jesus is talking about himself. He's talking about why he has come. And he talks about, and this is John chapter 10, verse 10. He's talking about how he's come, that his people may have abundant Life, You see, that's what's on offer by believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And that abundant life, we have to understand, is the life that he is currently living in, in joyful communion with God, his Father. So what that means, in other words, if you and I want to know what a fully human joyful, loving human experience life is, then we need to look no further than to Jesus. Which is an incredible claim, is it not, if you stop and think about it? An incredible claim. And yet this is the one that Jesus makes. And of course, in the life of the Christian, this is the business that God is into as he, by his Spirit who's indwelling us, is transforming us more as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ into his image, restoring that full humanity that has been broken by the sin at the fall. Jesus is living a fully human life. Into celebration, do you see him here? Into celebration, knowing friendship, knowing joy and enjoying the good creation according to its good design. And Jesus is at this wedding and he learns, doesn't he? Do you see from his, from his mom, he, he learns about the looming nightmare that's facing the groom. And the question in the text is, what is he going to do? What's he going to do with this information, right? Is he going to get his smartphone out? Probably not in this day, but go with me. Is he going to get his smartphone out and film this? Probably what you and I would have done, right, if this happened in our day. I mean, imagine how many people would watch that on Facebook, how many views, how many likes that would get. You would be an overnight sensation, but not Jesus. Because this episode here is about him displaying his glory to the world that his disciples and those watching might see and believe in him. As we get a glimpse into who he is and why he has come. Now in the text, you see verse 6. This is where we are. John tells us that there are six stone 
water jars there. The type used for ceremonial washing, right? Basically the ones that people would use to make themselves clean before they eat. And what does John say? Verse 6, that each of those jars holds 20 or 30 gallons. Now these are really important details in the text. And Jesus asks, here's another detail, that each of these be filled to the brim, right? Now, mass was never my strong point at school. But even I can deduce that that is a huge amount of water. Way more than than I'd imagine they would actually ever need at this wedding. Here are all these stone water jars filled to the brim and Jesus turns every single drop of it into wine. Right, you read around here, some commentators, they speculate that that is somewhere uh, of being our equivalent of a thousand bottles of wine. thousand bottles, get your head around that. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a a tour of a, a vineyard before. Right, and learn how they, they make wine. The only time I've ever done something like that was um, in Stellenbosch. I was there in South Africa a number of years ago, and I don't remember an awful lot from that trip except for the fact that I learned that there's a lot more to making wine than, for example, there is to making Ribena. Okay, this, is, this isn't 20% cordial, 80% water, and hey, presto, there you go kind of thing, right? Making wine takes time, and it's a complicated process. So here's a question that you're maybe asking from this text, and it's a great question to ask. How? How was Jesus able to do this? I mean, H2O doesn't just turn into C2H5O. H, ethanol, right? What a bizarre thing to believe. True, but what if Jesus, the one who stepped in here, is actually the one who controls the laws of chemistry? What if if he is the one who who controls the, 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 the whole scene here? What if he is the creator who is able to do all things, who stepped into the human equation And here he is. You see, here's what John has already said about Jesus back in chapter 1. If you want to flip back a page. Rightly off, he said that all things were made through him. That he is God in the flesh. This is Jesus. And therefore, this is exactly the kind of thing that we'd expect someone making that claim would be able to do. Here's a confession. I think I would struggle more with this. If Jesus made, this, made these claims about himself and he wasn't able to do things like this. You know, Jesus has this kind of power. And the question is, what will Jesus do with this power? It's interesting, isn't it? It's a, it's a question that maybe as a society and as a world that we're asking ourselves right now about those people who are in positions of power. Right in those positions of influence, having those platforms, what will they do with the power that's been given to them? What will they do with the power that they have? Now, part of the question, and we'll come back to it, what will Jesus do with the power that he has? But there's a question you might have in your mind. How does Jesus able to do this? Secondly, you might be thinking, well, people back then didn't know as much about science as we do today. I mean, 
Einstein didn't come up with the equals mc squared until 1905. What do these guys know? Well, true. But these prob- people probably knew enough about the way things work in the world to know that this isn't normally how you make wine. In other words, these people who taste, it's important to see that as well, they Taste is included here. They taste the water turned into wine. These people aren't fools, right? They know how this process normally goes. They aren't fools. In fact, you see how the proof is in the pudding here? Which is probably completely the wrong metaphor to use here, but we'll go with it. Do you see at verse 9 how the master of the ceremonies comes on the scene? Right? He's probably been to a wedding or two. I'd imagine in his lifetime, he tastes the wine, Right, another detail important, important to see here. He tastes the wine, a physical thing. Right, he doesn't get his wine app out on his phone and say it looks to me like a Pinot Noir. He doesn't do the smell test that we all do with wine, pretending we know what's going on when actually we don't, and saying mm, it smells like the good stuff. This man tastes the wine, and his palate can detect when wine is wine. And it can, t- can detect when wine is bad. And it can detect when wine is good. And when it is good. And he tastes this wine. And do you see how he concludes that this wine is the best? Uh, this, is, this is wonderful stuff that's been brought out here. I mean, this is the first century equivalent of the Screaming Eagle Cabernet Sauvignon which somebody paid $500,000 for recently at a charity auction. This stuff is the best. Here's the point. Jesus hasn't just provided quantity. Jesus has provided quality. Do you see it? Both of those things. His provision, in other words, is extravagantly abundant. Way more than anything we could possibly conceive of. And verse 10, here's what's going on. The MC calls for the groom because the usual thing to do in this culture is to bring out the good wine first. And once your guests were tired and they're full, you bring out the cheap stuff because they won't really notice. But not so this groom. So thinks the MC. This groom has done the opposite. He's not gone for the downward curve on the day. He's gone for the upward curve. To quote Vanessa Williams, he's gone and saved the best to last. And you see, maybe zooming out here, what's going on, this groom, he hasn't just been spared shame. Actually, he's been given honour in the wedding that almost all went wrong. But you see, there's, there's way more going on here than simply Jesus pulling off a neat trick, right? Like some kind of first century David Blaine. More going on here. And and to see it, and I pray that we see it and, and savor it, a good question to ask ourselves from the text is who is Jesus standing in for here at this wedding? Now the culture vultures out there might know that that huge painting of this scene by Paolo Veronese hangs proudly in the, in the Louvre in Paris. Some of you might have gone and seen it. 
And it's, it's a huge picture. And, and if you look carefully at it, there's something really strange actually about this scene. And the strange part of it is, is when you look at the head of the table, the positions of honour. And the strange thing is, it's not the groom that's sitting in that position where you'd normally expect him to be sitting. Actually, it's Jesus sitting in that position. Now, I've got no idea whether Veronese meant that or not. But that is profoundly the point of the passage. Who is Jesus standing in for here, friends? He's standing in for the groom, isn't he? And and when you add to that the, the fact that this little episode and as it follows John chapter 1 and on to John chapter 2, as he presents it, it takes place at the end of the first week of Jesus' public ministry, as John records it here, i.e. it happens on the seventh day, the perfect day. You begin to see that there's more going on here than we might first see. You know, I want you to think back. Did, did you catch the, the reading from Isaiah that we heard earlier? What God had said to his people centuries before Jesus arrived, God calling his people to turn back to him, to stop running their way, their, their sinful way, following and worshipping idols, to turn back to him and to, to trust him. Why? What will God do for them and be for them in the years to come? Here's what Isaiah records. God says, do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. So God is promising to come and rescue his people and be for them a perfect husband. And here is Jesus, the perfect divine groom who has come for that express reason to rescue his bride his people because the wedding that almost all went wrong it it points us to consider the wedding where all will be right because the bible story it, it ends with a wedding it ends with jesus the groom and his people the bride's God finally and fully dwelling with his, his people, which has been his intention all along, dwelling with them fully in his new creation. And we get the scene there in Revelation of a great multitude of people are there from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, gathered together, singing one song, glory to the Lamb who was slain, worshipping their heavenly Father, gathered together as one people of faith. And feasting with Jesus in his new and in his perfect kingdom. Now let me ask you, is a wonderful thing to consider and know to be true in light of everything that's gone on in recent days? 
a people, uh, many people of different tribes, tongues, and nations gathered together. What a wonderful scene. And I want you to know that if you're a Christian, I want you to be edified as you think about this scene because in all your difficulties that you might be facing right now, in all the questions that you might have, all the anxiety that might be lingering in your heart as you view the world and as you live your life in it, that right here is your untouchable hope, the one that you have for the future. And how will Jesus bring this about? It's a wonderful picture, but how will he bring it about? Well, do you see how Jesus is like the groom in this episode? But in a sense, friends, we all too are like the groom in this episode. Because we deserve shame for our failure to do something. For our failure to honour our creator God as he deserves to be honoured. And our desire to, to, our hearts kind of bent inward on themselves, our our natural inclination to want to honour ourselves rather than him. It's the very essence of of sin that plagues deep inside of all of us. And with that in mind, you see how there's a wonderful picture of the good news of the gospel here? As we see Jesus standing in for this groom, taking the shame that should have been rightfully his and instead bestowing on him honour. In fact, it's essentially what the rest of John's gospel is about. For what does he say? To see Jesus back at verse 4, what does he say has not yet come? His hour. In fact, you'll get that phrase repeatedly in John's gospel all the way through. Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come until he's on the verge of his death on the cross. And he says, my hour has come. The cross, the place where he goes to bear our shame on himself as he hangs there, as he sheds his blood, as he bears the wrath of God on himself, the one that we deserve, so that we, through faith in him, and purely by faith in him, as he brings us to himself and as he makes us his own, can know the status, the privilege, the right of being honoured in the eyes of our creator because our lives are found in the Son. Because what will Jesus do with the power that he has? Answer, he will use it to serve. He will use it to serve. The beating heart of a loving heavenly father for a world that is turned against him, the the devotion and the desire and the determination of Jesus, the Son, to, to win his bride for himself as he goes to the cross. This is what's driving this. Jesus will use his power, not to lord it, but to serve. You know, I was reflecting with somebody recently on the phone in, in our church, and we were talking about everything that's going on in our world just now, and We were mentioning that as we look at everything that's happening in our world at the minute, the uncertainty, the pain, 
the sense of helplessness, the abuse that's going on when you behold the world and then you behold God's king. We've reflected that at perhaps no other time in our lives has following Jesus, being his disciple, both made more sense and felt more attractive. Here is God's king. Here is Jesus. So friends, a wedding. What's the worst that could happen? Well, according to John, it's as he records this wedding here, actually the worst thing that you and I could do is that we could read of this wedding and we would fail to see the glory of and believe in Jesus, the perfect divine groom. So my question as we finish is, do you know him as your Lord and King and Saviour? And if not, what a wonderful opportunity you have now to believe in the name of Jesus and have life in his name. So why don't I pray? And um, during this time, why don't you just use it to reflect uh, on everything that we've spoken about, just in the silence before I pray. From heaven you came, helpless babe. Entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve and give your life that we might live. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. And so, Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. Oh, help us to savour and see Jesus more off the back of this today. May these words linger long in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' precious name we pray and ask. Amen. Well, I trust that as we've heard God's word this morning and as we've responded to it individually in our own lives, uh, that it's caused us to, to think Uh, to stop in our tracks and to consider uh, both the world in which we live and the lives that we are currently leading, our day-to-day lives. Let me just encourage you, if you want to read John's Gospel, uh, if you've never read it before and you're thinking that may be something you might want to do, or you can think of a friend or family member who might be interested in doing that, let me just encourage you to consider the words one-to-one. This is John's Gospel. It's designed... Uh, in a really accessible format, to be read one-to-one with somebody uh, with the aim of introducing them to the Jesus that we meet uh, in the Bible. So if you'd be interested in that, again, just email questions at Brunsfield. Uh, We would love to be able to uh, do that with you. You know, one of the things that we've been doing over the last few Sundays, and has been a great encouragement to many of us, is to hear from different people in our congregation Uh, And to hear them tell us their stories about how they came to meet Jesus and know him as their Lord and as their King and as their Savior and what it means for them to follow him, be his disciple uh, as they live their daily lives. 
and to hear a bit about what the Lord has been teaching them during this season of lockdown. So I'm delighted to say we're going to hear now from uh, one of our members called Bobby. Uh, and Bobby is just going to tell us a little bit about his story. Uh, and after Bobby has um, spoken to us, uh, we will have our final song. Hi there, my name is Bobby and my wife Joanne and I are members here at Brunsfield in Edinburgh. I wanted to take just a short amount of your time to let you know what we've learned faith-wise during the lockdown and, and also um, a reminder of a story that happened to us about a year ago, which I think is very relevant right now. Um, now, obviously, we found this time a little odd um, and I guess not exactly as we'd imagined, especially because we're expecting our first child in around a month. Um, so it's been an uh, an exciting time, but also an anxious time. Um, I guess like many of you being stuck inside. Um, one thing it's important to note is that we find ourselves very fortunate and blessed at the moment. Um, you know, I, I've remained in work and within a job. We haven't been furloughed. We haven't lost our jobs. And, and Joanna's been safe at home um, at the moment, which is which is great. Um, so I guess in the large scheme of things, we have very few worries, which we can be thankful to God for. Um, and you know, this uncertain time has made me think a little bit about trust, what it means to trust in God in good times and what it means to trust in God in, in bad times as well or in uncertain times. And this whole situation we're in has reminded me of a difficult time for our family, which happened around this time last year. Um, it was the day before my birthday and I'd woken up to about 20 missed calls from my mum. And Upon calling her back, she said to me, your, your brother is really unwell. Your brother, David, uh, we think he's going to die. And uh, obviously this was, this was devastating news. kind of took the rug out from underneath us. And uh, what happened was my brother had gone into work, uh, a normal day at work, uh, and soon after had, had collapsed. Um, an infection in his tooth had spread uh, to his heart um, and caused a condition called endocarditis. Now, this condition pumps blood clots uh, around the body and had pumped two blood clots uh, either side of his head, um, which subsequently had caused an aneurysm um, on both sides of his head. So two two explosions within his head. Um, and then, uh, you know, short after in the hospital, we found out that the doctors, the consultants, the surgeons um, at the Glasgow Queen Elizabeth had told us to expect the worst, that, that people don't survive these things. Um you know, and that if he did recover, um, which is super unlikely, that they don't normally see that he wouldn't be himself. Um, he'd be a vegetable. He'd be unresponsive. Um, and this was obviously devastating news for us. But it's important to note that the story didn't end there. You know, there were there were months of prayer, there were months of uncertainty and heartbreak. While while David remained on a, a ventilator, unresponsive, we would go to visit him, and and there would be nothing there. Um, and it was hard to remain positive and, and upbeat and hard to keep trust in God uh, during that time. But he pulled through, um, I'm pleased to say. Uh, and, and rather than give the full story here, I thought it'd be nice if we heard from David directly. Now, he's got a strong Glaswegian accent and speaks pretty quickly. So I thought it'd be nice to put some subtitles below because it's really important that people understand his story. Firstly, thanks for agreeing to do this, David. Um, I'm sure a lot of the people at Brunsfield and in other places that have been praying for you will uh, love to put a face to the name. I guess, firstly, it's a miracle that you're here, right? I mean, the doctors didn't think you would make it. My brother was kind of getting told off the doctor to try and convince my parents to not expect too much about it. And the doctor was saying to my mum and all that, like, 
yeah, he's not going to make it type thing or not, to literally them talking to, talking to me about going back to my work is a miracle. It can't be put any other way, it is a miracle. I mean, it's crazy to think that they'd written you off. I mean, it's it's definitely a miracle. Um, and the beard, um, am I right in saying that that's going to be shaven off when you go back to work? Yeah. You know, when this had all first kicked off um, and, you know, we'd heard what happened to you, I, I didn't know what to do. Um, I, I'd sent a text to a few people at Brunsfield telling them the situation and asking for prayer. And at that point, you know, it was when the doctor said that you wouldn't survive. So things weren't looking great for you. How how does it feel that hundreds of people in Edinburgh, in Perth, and around the world were praying for you? It's humbling to just think about it because it's one of the ones that I don't, I can't tell it's not a fathom the amount of people that like, They've not even not even met me. They don't know me, but have prayed for me because they've heard so much about me and all that. And I think that's amazing. Like I can't put it in the words how how grateful I am that these people have actually taken the time out to think about me and to pray for me. And I was in death's door, and it was because people were praying for me and people were like, it was because of that that I became better. Like it's it's, it's nothing to do with me. I was just lying down my thumb for about two months. It was to do with everyone who was everyone who's praying for me. Everyone over the world prayed for me got me better and got me to where I am now so it's a big thank you to each and every one of them yeah amazing and um, I guess what did the people who had looked after you early on in your illness think of your recovery am I right in saying that you met one of the nurses from early on you know I had the Medi cinema but I, I was in with my dad and I went and it was a woman who was kind of she was kind of looking after a few of the other like, sort of residents or like a few of the patients and that and she told her and stared at me for about five minutes and I was, I was literally just about turning at my dad and going, why is this woman looking at me? Like, are you David McDonald? And she was one of the nurses who was there, like, who was there when they would get told, like, I wasn't going to make it. And she just seen me and she just, like, she was phoning up 20,000 people just to tell me that David's still alive, basically. Miracle. Miracle, definitely. Well, thanks for taking the time, David. It's It's been good uh, to interview you, to hear just a small part of your journey um, and your story. Um, so thanks for taking the time to do this. No problem. Now, from that short interview with David, you know, it's clear that um, God had answered our prayer. You know, David's living proof of that. Um, but thinking back to the time, you know, it was hard for us as a family to trust in God. We, we had so many questions. Why is this happening, God? Um, but um, ultimately, I think we knew that God was in control and you know, for Joanna and I, the faith and the trust um, that, that my mum and my stepdad Robert had in, had in God during this time was, was really inspiring. You know, and this whole situation proved to me that, you know, if God was at work then, um, he can still be at work now. He can answer prayers now and he can be with us. He can be with you in a, in a difficult situation now, just like he was with us last year. So, so trust trust in God and remember that prayer works and that he still answers prayers.